I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation to come speak at your church today. We thank the pastor and the church. I, I, I'm always amazed by the poinsettias uh, where we come from. They're trees, and so to see them this little small is a little uh, interesting for us. Nancy and I have been ministering in Uganda and South Sudan in this last term. In 2011, we moved from our beloved first country of assignment, Kenya, and we moved over uh, to, to work, in, work in Uganda. We had set out to learn new cultures in order to do research and train leaders among the unreached and unengaged people groups of South Sudan and South Chad. We formed those into another cluster, and we call ourselves Chadan. <laughs> Funny thing there, but that's where we are. South Sudan is the newest country in the whole world today, and it's fraught with all the issues that a new country, we would, new country would, ha would have, especially after 20 years of war. It is among the most difficult places to live with very little infrastructure such as roads or hospitals or communication and very little security. <laughs> we recently learned that the few police that they have in South Sudan were the rejects from the army. Now, the, the corruption is a way of life, and most people are just focused on survival. Uh, most police cannot read, and they have little to no training. But they make up for these deficiencies by being very aggressive with loaded AK-47s. So that helps out a whole lot. As a result of the regional conflict, many of the UPGs have fled to northern Uganda to refugee camps. And we devised a plan to reach these UPGs, it's what we call the Unreached and Engaged People Groups, uh, in these camps. Uh, they, had, they were in desperate situations, no water, no food, no shelter or anything. And I'm not talking about five or ten people, I'm talking about 70 to 90,000 people. And so to try to get help there was, was difficult. Through Baptist Global Response, our International Mission Board's uh, Development and Relief Agency, we were able to drill water holes in, in uh, about 10 different places for thousands of people to get water. That gave us an entree into these camps. The UN doesn't normally provide those things for us, but it gave us an entree into the camps. And as a result of that, we have 10 churches started among those, those refugees, among UUPGs that had formerly not even heard of the name of Jesus. Pretty cool stuff. The few South Sudanese, South Sudanese who have trusted Jesus as their Savior have had their lives changed from inside out. For the last three and a half years, I have been training uh, pastors and leaders, the few that we have, uh, to use better techniques in reaching those who cannot read and write. We use uh, a storing cloth that, that I developed. You don't know if you've ever seen anything like this, but I, de I developed this to help them to learn God's Word. They can't read or write, so we teach them stories from Genesis down to Jesus. Now, most of their, a lot of them don't even have uh, the, the Bible at all. If they do have the Bible, it's just the New Testament. So they don't even know any Old Testament stories. And so these guys are so hungry for God's word. And the people where they work, I was just teaching the leaders and the pastors, the, people, the places where they come from, they're even more hungry for the God's word. We call it a chronological Bible workshop. And I teach from like 7 in the morning till 9 at night. At every break, these guys are asking me thousands of questions. Well, now we have this situation. What does God's word say about that? And so we're just teaching, teaching, teaching. It is so exciting because we got people who want to hear God's word. They're soaking it up like a sponge. I tell you, it's more fun than a barrel of monkeys. After the training sessions on evangelism one particular time, we send out guys to go practice what they just learned. This is not about just hearing stuff. You hear a little, you do more. And so they went out to practice. They led, they led 42 people to faith in Christ just in one afternoon. They came back so pumped up, cheering, goes, yes, we can share the gospel. This is tremendous. 
before they they'd had a little training in like a Roman road or using tracks, but they could not transmit how to take those literate methods to people who didn't read and write. So using these simple stories, they could tell the story of Jesus so people understood why he had to come to save us. And so they were very pumped up. This one group, I went to another uh, small village in town, trained these pastors. Two of them got so excited, they went to this area where there were no churches. They led 80 people to faith in Christ. But see, we had done so much intensive training on, on these stories here, we didn't get to baptism. So they got on their cell phone, they said to the, to the missionary that was closest to them, they said, hey, come up here and teach us about baptism. We have 80 people who want to get baptized. Well, the missionary thought he said they had eight. So when he got there, there were 80 people on the ground. He goes, where did the rest of these people come from? We said 80. Don't you know the number? Eight to zero. And so they were so excited and so pumped about what was happening. Out of the only 125 Baptist churches in South Sudan, only about half of those leaders have any biblical training whatsoever. And if they have some, it's like the equivalent of an Old Testament and New Testament survey. It's like a broad understanding of what's going on. So we want to give them in-depth stories that they can memorize so easily and then take it to other people who also can memorize it so easily in order to give it to others. We're serious about training trainers, not just putting stuff in people's heads, but we want them to get it and go give it to someone else, to the fourth generation. You can see with people who are like 95% illiterate, it's important for us to use training technologies that are oral-based. We're totally amazed at the living conditions of South Sudanese. They have little food, little living structures, and no access to clean water, no health care facilities, little to no security, uh, and little to no transportation that's available. And when it is available, at the cost of $12 to $15 a gallon for diesel fuel, uh, it's hard for people to move around. They have been humbled by their privation. A good friend of mine, his name is Malai, illustrated this concept one time. I went to his small town of Ye, and he picked me up at, at the small airstrip. It looks like a postage stamp when you're coming down in this small plane to land on it. He picked me up there. Now, he had been a high-ranking officer in the South Sudanese Army for 17 years. And so he's able to squirrel away a little money, and he bought this very, very, very old vehicle. We're driving and I'm thinking the fender's going to fall off any time and he's driving on this road very slowly which I appreciated because although there are rules of how to drive in South Sudan they're the news country and most people don't know that there are rules and so people are cutting in from the left and the right and we're going I'm, I'm just praying help us Jesus and it was only one time I got really excited my foot was on the dashboard because I thought this dump truck but a uh, 10-ton dump truck was coming right at us. And I thought, okay, we're going to see Jesus right now. And he just calmly braked and looked over at me, and he says, Bob, when driving in South Sudan, one has to humble himself greatly. And I thought, <laughs> even with the deprivation of many things that we would consider as essential to life and their depressed economy, it is contagious to see their joy-filled joy lives uh, because they've been changed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're convinced these believers make a choice to do this. They decide to humble themselves by choosing to have a Christ-controlled life rather than a crisis-controlled life. We have no concept of this. We haven't been living in war since the day we were born. We don't wake up every morning thinking, okay, the enemies are going to come this day and shoot the place up with uh, RPGs, rocket-propelled grenades or something like that. But these people have a, a joy-filled life because they lived a Christ-controlled life. Sometimes it's a daily choice on their part. 
And it often takes place in extremely difficult times. Like right now, the potential of this regional conflict spreading to a whole entire uh, civil conflict in the, in, the, in the entire country. Since our move to Uganda from Kenya, Nancy and I have been focused on uh, trying to just live and, and survive in a new country. And it's a choice for us uh, in the face of a lot of difficulties as well. This term, this last uh, three and a half years, has been the most challenging of our 24-year span on the mission field. In September of 2012, I literally came a uh, heartbeat away from dying. I, I, I thought I was having asthma, and, you know, ain't nobody got time for that. And so I went there and came uh, come to find out the reason why I couldn't breathe is because I had multiple, multiple pulmonary emboli. Now, of course, when the, when the doctor was telling me this, I had no idea what she was saying. She could have been speaking Japanese for a lot. I said, ma'am, just give me some medicine. I've got to be in South Sudan this week. She goes, you're going in the hospital. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've never been in the hospital except to visit people. I found myself in ICU uh, because they said the blood clots in your lungs could just kill you at any second. And I thought, what? And so I, I was amazed. The admitting nurse, I'd never been admitted before. They didn't realize that I speak Swahili very well. They just, I wasn't talking too well because I was coughing like crazy. And so they were speaking to me in what English, you know, that they knew. And I was just there watching all the stuff, getting hooked up to machines that are spitting out paper and beeping and whizzing and stuff like that. And this one other nurse came to the nurse that was taking care of me, and she goes, Phyllis, well, she said, actually, Phyllis, I didn't mean Phyllis, help me with another person. And this woman named Phyllis who was helping me, she goes, And she said, don't worry me. You see this white guy here? He's about to die. You'll take care of your own business. I'm about to die? And I said that out loud. She goes, you understood that? I said, Kilanano, every word. She goes, oh, so sorry. And so I, I'm getting on the phone and calling Nancy because I was in Nairobi. She was in Entebbe, Uganda. I was in Kenya. And I said, uh, sweetheart, uh, these people are getting a little sporty over here. You might want to hop a plane and come to where I am. Well, you know, when you get in situations like that, your life quickly passes before your eyes. They stuck me in this ICU unit. You've never been in one of these places. It's, it's a little disconcerting. There are no TVs to watch the football game. What's up with that? You have to just be quiet for hours. Well, you know, I thought I could die. I can go see Jesus anytime now. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm about to stand before holy, awesome God. I better kind of get my, myself straight because I know what a wicked rascal I am. So I was confessing any sin I hadn't confessed, and then I didn't, I didn't die. And I thought, hmm. Okay, then I began to pray for people that I share the gospel with, but who didn't pray to receive Christ, and I prayed for all of them and still wasn't dead, so I just kept praying. And I prayed for a long time. <laughs> Sorry, I've been catching a cold. Uh, we normally live in about 95-degree weather, so this 40-degree weather, what's up with that? Um, I knew things were real serious when my supervisor and my fellow uh, missionary came in, and they took my boots and left with them. I said, what in the world are you doing? You don't take a man's boots. And I thought, things are getting serious around here. So it was good to see Nancy come through the door about eight hours later uh, because I, there was a time where I thought, okay, I'm not going to see my wife again or my kids. Uh, this is, this is uh, kind of tough. Anyway, uh, as a result of, of that experience and my best arguing with doctors, I was put on blood thinning medicine for, for six months which effectively stopped me from doing my real work. 
which is going in the bush, what I really love to do, uh, to talk with UPGs uh, about Christ. Now, Nancy was an immeasurable help, as was, <coughs> excuse me, our fellow teammates, Kurt and Deedee Isles. Uh, Kurt and Deedee are uh, fellow, uh, you call yourself Louisianers? Okay, you'll get me straight on that later on. Anyway, they're from Dry Creek just down the road here. They help us uh, do research. So I was, was uh, relegated to computer research at that time. Uh, but that, Kurt and Deedee do a fantastic job. But I frequently had opportunities to choose to live, uh, to choose whether to live a Christ-controlled life or a crisis-controlled life. Now, added to the challenges of dealing with the effects of the blood-thinning medicine, my greatest fear as a missionary came upon me. A nine-year-old Ugandan boy hurrying to school one morning ran in front of my truck without even a glance. Uh, he had been behind another vehicle on the side of the road, and so I never saw him until he was in my lane. And um, I, I tried to, to, to turn to miss him, but he looked and saw me coming, and then he ran, started running back. So the truck struck him, although uh, I wasn't even going 30 miles an hour, but he was a small nine-year-old kid. Anyway, long story short, after a brain surgery, the doctor said he would make a, a full recovery. And so I went, with the, went down to where his family were, his mother and his father and his aunt that he was staying with, his favorite aunt. And then I prayed with him. I told him I was a born-again Christian, which is a way to tell him that I'm not just some kind of Christian. I'm a serious Christian, a follower of Christ. And, and we prayed together. The woman said that she was also the, the, mother, the aunt, the lady he was staying with, said that she too was a, uh, born again and that actually Stephen, the young boy, was as well. But the next morning at 5.30 when the father called me that Stephen had passed away during the night, began a series of the darkest days of my life. I had to look into the eyes of the father and the mother, his favorite aunt at the hospital when we arrived to pick up the boy for for burial, their only child. This grief and, uh, and anguish I experienced, uh, it overwhelmed me like the waves of a dark, restless sea. And added to that grief was a real threat of being thrown into a Ugandan prison. And in cases like these, the driver is automatically charged with vehicular manslaughter. And they go with your, your guilty until you're proven innocent uh, first. And so while I was uh, being held on bond, uh, the Lord provided such grace. The pastor and the head uh, deacon of the church came at that time to the police station and stood for me. I didn't know actually what that phrase meant, but basically what it means is that they were willing to go to prison if I didn't show up every week to um, go back to the police station. And so uh, the proof of my, of my uh, innocence was proved the first week uh, of the accident, but I had to repeat we repeatedly go back to the police station for six months every week uh, to show up. And it was, an, it was an opportunity for me to choose whether to have a Christ-controlled life or a crisis-controlled life. It's a, one thing to be threatened by police here. It's a whole other thing to be threatened by police in a third-world country that thrive on corruption um, and the highest bribes uh, from the highest bidder. Uh, some of our other missionaries in, in our Chadean cluster also have opportunities to live Christ-controlled lives. You see on the screen here, we have three couples who live in South Sudan. They're all young uh, couples with all young children. They've already had to, we've already had to evacuate the, these, these guys twice because of the civil war that's going on now. Now they're back in the country uh, serving uh, to the couples. 
uh, where three children under five are living in one house because the IMB didn't have the money uh, last year to, uh, to give them two houses. One family's driving a 12-year-old vehicle with broken strings because we didn't have money to get new springs. A uh, place of living is seriously hot. It's 122 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. But don't worry, it cools down to 100 at night. Uh, go, we went up there just here recently. Uh, I'm talking about you can't lie on your back, your ears fill with sweat, so you have to lie on your side uh, or you just shake the sweat out of your ears. Uh, it's, it's a difficult place to stay. These people are totally impressive. You may ask, well, who in the world would put young missionaries with babies to live in such a place? The short answer is you and I would as Southern Baptist missionaries or as Southern Baptists because we are committed to reaching the least reached for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our goal this year for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, $175 million. So the $175 million question is, Will you and I send missionaries out and leave them without the means to do their task? That's the question. So I ask you again to reconsider, again, your gift. And thank you for giving this morning. Thank you so much for giving this morning. Uh, I want you to reconsider again giving uh, because these young couples represent 5,000 other Southern Baptist missionaries, some who are living in countries that we can't even name because they, if they're named as missionaries, they get killed in those countries. We were just talking to a couple of them uh, just two weeks ago who just got evac'd out of Yemen, which is a good thing, or they've been uh, lost their head over the situation. If you don't, don't understand that, I'll talk to you later what that means. So these couples here, uh, Robert and Meredith Lane, Selvin Laurel, Jeremias, and Shannon and Carrie Lewis. Also, the Lewises are from Louisiana, LSU crazy people. Uh, you pray for them and their children, if you will. Well, during the time of this accident, I reread a book by Andrew Murray simply called Humility. The author's thesis is that a person cannot truly be saved or walk with Jesus or be able to live a Christ-filled, Christ-like, Christ-controlled life before God and others without true humility. Now, I believe God's Word teaches this statement is true. I was thinking as I began to read this book, Lord, I believe I've already been through a, a graduate-level course in humility. But as I began to read the books and the corresponding scriptures, wow, the Holy, Spirit began, the Holy Spirit began to point out to me subtle ways that pride had wormed its way into my life. I know what a wretch I am, but I thank Jesus for his greater grace than all my sins. I was set free from the threat of a Ugandan prison one week before Christmas. Um, it's a time that we normally celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Well, combined with a reflection upon all the things that had happened to me uh, along in those preceding months, I began to ponder about the humiliation that Jesus had to endure in just coming to earth. I believe we're called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and it would behoove us to grasp the truth that the Christ-controlled life must be lived in clothes of humility. Read with me, if you will, in Philippians 1, 27 through 30. I have it on the screen if you forgot your Bible today. It says this, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to do what? 
to suffer for his sake. Experience the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now Paul wrote to the Philippian church while he was in a Roman prison about 67 AD to thank them for a gift that they had sent. He wrote them realizing he would not see them again. Now keep in mind, he was in prison to face the emperor Nero in court. However, he points out in chapter 1, verse 10, that he is in prison for the cause of Christ. In other books, he refers to himself not as the prisoner of Rome, but as the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a thing of amazement to me. Paul told the Philippians that they too should expect suffering for the sake of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. We have to get into our minds today and on our lips that Jesus is sovereign Lord over all. That's the point where you say, Amen. Y'all do still do that in Baptist churches. I was telling the pastor, we have a problem because we come from Africa where we dance, and I'm on the front row doing this, and I look around going, okay, I'm not in Africa. And by the way, I am not a lounge singer down here. This is just a Uganda dress, all right? But we have to keep in our minds that Jesus is Lord, sovereign over all. Nothing happens unless he directly causes it or he allows it to happen in our life. Our loving Father, let me tell you, is not so much concerned with our happiness as I heard someone say down in Houston here recently. I heard from the Internet. He's not concerned with your happiness or my happiness. He is concerned with our holiness and our being conformed to the image of His dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes He's allowed suffering to come into our life in order to conform us to the image of Christ so that we would look more like Him than like the world. Sometimes He's allowed suffering to come in our life so that we can comfort others with the same comfort with which we were comforted during the time of suffering. You hear what I'm saying? And there's a sometimes we don't even understand why we're going through what we're going, but we must confess and believe and keep on believing that Jesus is sovereign Lord. Now, the only way to get us through this suffering is to trust Him and His sovereignty, to, to thank Him and to give Him glory for all the things, because why? He is sovereign and in His due, His name. I'm not saying these are easy things to do. This last term uh, saw a serious exercise of trust for me and provided an almost daily choice to praise and to thank and to glorify Jesus for what I had experienced. Pride showed up even when I was recovering. I tried to remind God in my puny way, being fraught with a pitiful idea that I had so much work to do, I had no time to be an invalid. I attempted to point out to God that of all the hundreds or thousands of vehicles on that road that morning, why did he allow that little kid to run in front of my truck? I mean, after all, I was on my way to the capital city, Kampala, to share the gospel in the slums. I had better things to do. I was not able to sleep. I replayed those events over and over in my mind. And for the first time in my life, I was depressed. And had great trouble focusing on my thoughts and became more and more irritable and critical uh, to the point of allowing a root of bitterness to start coming in my life. I daily confessed my sins of failing to trust in the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ for all that. I confessed the sin of a thankless heart rather than one filled with praise a mouthful of bitterness rather than one of blessing, and a critical spirit rather than an attitude of praise. I believe it was God's grace and the prayers of people like you that got me through these events. It was God's grace that allowed 
Nance and me to join the praise band at Entebbe Baptist Church to, to drive us to learn new praise songs every week so we were forced to praise him. God is so good. Now I admit that I still struggle with these events. I still think about uh, that, the fact that my, my life could have ended suddenly. I rejoice that, that Stephen had already uh, trusted Christ as the Savior of the little boy. And in my mind, but in my mind, though, I still see the bleary eyes of the father and the mother and the favorite aunt as they uh, laid their son to rest by the side of their house. And so I strive to, and it's a choice, to live a Christ-controlled life. There's an example in Philippians 2 in the preceding verses. I wish we had time to read it all, but I want to focus your attention on verse 7. <coughs> Let me start in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Five says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You guys are already celebrating the coming birth of Jesus Christ. In this verse, we see his humility as we're reading this passage. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Now, I want you to grasp that truth just for a half a second. This is the Lord of the universe who has no need of anyone or anything, sitting on his regal throne in all of his glory. And what does he do? He puts on skin and comes to earth. He allows a young couple to meet his physical, social, religious, emotional, and psychological needs. Just fathom that. He was and he still is God. He just put on skin. He clothed himself with flesh to dwell with humans. He clothed himself with humility. Can you imagine what it was, this was like for Jesus? Just think about it. Perfect man interacting with imperfect people. It can only end in agony and suffering. No wonder Isaiah 53 calls him a man of sorrows. It must have been a daily choice for Jesus not to just kill us all and start all over like in the days of Noah. I, I can't even imagine what Jesus did when he came face to face with the people he knew would, would kill him and beat him and ridicule him and shame him. I can't even imagine. Yet, what did he do? He chose to humble himself. Have you read Hebrews 12? It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand on high. Look at the phrase, he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. This gives us a clue how we can humble ourselves. Number one, it's a choice. We choose to do this. It's not, oh, I, I can do no other. This is who I am. Sorry, Holy Spirit lives inside you, gives you power to, to, to live the Christian life. Choose to live a Christ-controlled life, not a crisis Field life, right? That's what Jesus did. And he focused on what's ahead here. We, and that's what we have to do is focus on Jesus. Well, how do we focus on Jesus? We cannot lift him higher than he already is. He's the sovereign Lord. So like John the Baptist, we must decrease and we must humble ourselves. We must choose to live a Christ-controlled life by not thinking too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. As an indication, we need to look at our conversations, what comes out of our mouth. Is it more about me and what's going on in my life? Or do I speak about Jesus and his love and his mercy and his grace and how he loves us so much he came to die for us? 
What comes out of my mouth is an indication of, am I filled with Christ or am I filled with my own pride? We live a Christ-controlled life by not putting others down. You know, I've been watching uh, football games here of late, mainly because I love football and hadn't seen it in a, in a while. But I'm amazed. What comes out of these guys' mouth when they've won? Oh, the other team did good. We congratulate them for, for work, uh, doing well, even, even though they lost. No. They're going, the sorry dogs they deserved to lose, and they put down everybody and his brother. And I'm going, whatever happened to just thanking someone and, and shaking their hand? I don't understand that. We can't even have relationships without humility where we, we, we look at ourselves and not talk about ourselves but listen to everyone. Have you considered that you can't even witness without humility? Witnessing is an exercise best performed in the clothes of humility. When we witness, we have to be vulnerable. Pride hates that. When we witness, we need to be a learner. Listen to the other person. Pride wants to tell the other person what to do. Pride focuses on us and how we feel or how unsure we are about what's going on. Humility focuses on the other person and loving them enough to share the greatest news in the world that Jesus came to die on the cross for them. When we share the love of Jesus, it's best done in the clothes of humility. I'm sure you read James 4 where it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Can you imagine that, God being at war with us if we're prideful people? But if we're humble, the reverse is also true. He gives grace, and he gives easy and says he will exalt us. Today, let us focus on the humility of Jesus and follow him by humbling ourselves. You and I will not avoid crises in our lives. But we're the only ones who can respond in humility by trusting him, praising him, and giving him glory every day. Let us not allow our crisis to define us. Let us choose to focus on the only one who can bring us through the crisis. Let us humble ourselves today to share the good news with family and friends and acquaintances. Celebrating the birth of Jesus is one of the greatest times of the year to tell people about Jesus. Instead of saying, oh, Merry Christmas, you say, I hope you have a wonderful time celebrating the birth of the coming Savior. Woo! That's a lot different than saying Merry Christmas, isn't it? Don't lose one opportunity this year. Lastly, let, let us humble ourselves by giving to others as well as giving to missions. We celebrate the Father giving us the most precious and wonderful gift, His only Son to die on the cross for us. At least we could do is compare our gift to spread the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ to what we spend on our favorite hobby, sport, or pet. I challenge you to give more to the eternal work of spreading the gospel to missions around the world than to temporary issues that we deal, whether I need to have a red shirt or a blue shirt this, this Christmas. Let us establish a legacy, and you already have in this church. I challenge you to keep going further and further to establish a legacy here, this church being a church on mission with God and giving to missions, not just the money, but prayer. You are sending people out. I was talking to John the other day. Thank you for doing that. Raise up people to go. Let me tell you if, you, if your kids say you need to go to Africa, go, hallelujah. This is great. Been living there 24 years. I love it. My kids grew up there. They think it's home because that's where we decided God wants us. Have a legacy about missions. Let's pray. Father, we bow in obedience and faith and trust in you today. Help us not to live crisis-filled lives or crisis-controlled lives but Christ-controlled lives today. Let us humble ourselves before you, Lord. We give you glory and praise, and we want your kingdom to be furthered. In Jesus' name, amen.